July of 2006. I'd been married for all of five weeks, and I was taking a trip with 27 junior high students down the Peace River in Florida, and we would canoe down the, the river, and we would camp out on the banks of the river, and then uh, get up the next day, get in the boats, and go again. And on the first day of the trip, I sliced my finger open pretty bad. And the medic that was on the trip said, hey, you need to take your ring off and place it on another finger. I thought, okay, that's fine, no big deal. Well, the second day of the trip, we get to this place where there's this big rock, and we can jump off of it. In Florida, big rocks are what we call cliffs. And, uh, <laughs> and so we could jump off of this rock into the water. And so I got up, it was my turn, and I jumped in slow motion, my ring came off the finger, and it went out in front of me, and I thought, ah! <laughs> and it hit the water, and then I hit the water, and I put 27 middle school kids in the Peace River for two and a half hours and told them, you find that ring. <laughs> and we swam around, and we were looking for it to no avail. And so uh, a couple hours later, we get to this place where I can reach into the five-gallon bucket that I had and get to my phone, and I get to my phone, and I call my wife of five weeks, and I say, are you sitting down? She said, yes. I said, hey, um, so do uh, you love me? <laughs> yeah. I said, all right, well, I lost my wedding ring. And she said, all right, that's not a big deal. I said, all right, I'll see you in a few days. Bye. Click. Don't want to hear anything else. <laughs> see ya. So I shared that story Monday morning. We have a group we get together with to study the passage that we're going to be preaching on. And uh, we like to study together, so it's kind of a group effort. And I said, hey, how many of you are on your, uh, more than your first wedding ring? So let me ask you all, how many of you are on wedding ring number two or more? Anybody? Bold enough? Whoa. All right, we are all clumsy together. Oh, wow. Well, I asked that question, and Ryan King, our student minister, said, hey, I'm on my, my second ring as well. I said, how'd you lose yours? And he said, slow motion. And I said, Okay. How'd that happen? And he said, well, I was in the, at the beach, and I dove for a football with my dad, and they collided, and he slow motion watched his ring come off of his finger, and then a wave came and hit it, and it was gone. Uh, there's no finding it. Well, then Richard Mott, uh, one of the older guys in our church, uh, has been here for many years. Uh, he said, I'm on my uh, second ring as well. I said, how'd you lose yours? He said, illegally. I said, oh, this will be good. There's statute of limitations, so he can't be held accountable at this point, but... He said he was, he'd been fasting that day. I think he's just trying to spiritualize it. Uh, and he had grabbed some grain and stuff. He was throwing it out in the field to woo some animals so that he could hunt them. And after fasting, just kind of felt like, you know, it was working. And he grabbed the grain and threw it. And he said he watched his ring go out into the field. He said he looked for two days, brought a metal detector, did everything he could, and to no avail. Now, I share all that with you because we're going to come across a word today in the text that when translated can have the meaning like a ring slipping off of a finger. It's this idea of drifting, this idea of letting something slip, not holding on tight enough and losing something that's important to you, drifting away from something. And we'll get to that here in just a moment. But I want to jump right into Hebrews chapter 2. If you have your Bible, we are going to be studying through the book of Hebrews for quite a while together. We've got those journals you can take notes with. You can take notes on the back of the handout um, that, that Ben referenced earlier today as well. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to keep going in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, anytime you read in the Bible the word therefore, you have to ask yourself a really important exegetical question. What is it? What's it? Therefore. Okay? The therefore is there because of everything he just got done explaining. In Hebrews chapter 1, 
Here's the temptation, though. Let me just be really honest with you for a moment. It's really easy for us to say, this letter was written to a group of Christians who lived back then, and here's what they were tempted with. But I want you to pause for a moment. These were real people. These just real people become Christians, and after going through what we would call routine, maybe some of us call it going through the motions, temptation began to set in. And they were tempted. And one of the things that was tempting them was a teaching known as Gnosticism. Everyone say Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught many different things, but the height of it is it comes from a Greek word meaning knowledge, meaning the whole purpose of life is to gain more knowledge, to learn more. That was the whole purpose of it. One of the things that they did is they, they would teach that God was so big, he could not be communicated with. He's so big and so powerful, you cannot directly communicate with God, and so they worshipped angels. And they would say, hey, you can worship an angel and then pass a message on to an angel, and that angel will pass it on to another angel, who will, and eventually God will get your message, but God's too big for you to communicate with directly. This is what the Gnostics would teach. It's kind of like a spiritual game of telephone. Eventually God will get your message, just keep passing it on. And they were tempted to begin to worship this way, to worship angels and, and to go about communicating with God this way. And so what we studied last week in chapter 1 was right away the author says, hey, God used to speak to us in a variety of different ways. Yes, through angels, and yes, through prophets, and yes, through the law. But now he speaks to us through his son, Jesus. Essentially what he's saying is this. Why in the world? I know you're tired. I know you've been experiencing persecution. But why in the world would you try to communicate with God in the old system when he has made a perfectly good way for you to communicate with him now? You might be saying, well, Rob, I don't worship angels, so this isn't really fully relevant to me. And I agree. But there are some teachings right? That would say, hey, maybe you don't worship angels, but we do pray to and ask for help from saints. Many people teach that Christians that came before, they become saints, and we can pass a message on to them, and they will relay a message on to God for us. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look, saints, wonderful people, lived wonderful lives, did wonderful things for the kingdom, and angels, they're wonderful creatures, and they're, they're wonderful creatures that do wonderful things, and God uses them to do incredible things. But here's the thing, whether it's the angel or the saint, they're both created. And the author of Hebrews is saying, why are you going to the creation when through Jesus you've been given a direct connection to the creator? You don't need to go to God through any of these ways anymore. You come directly to the Father because of the Son, Jesus. It's this direct connection. That's how you come to it. So he spends chapter 1 comparing Jesus to the angels. And he says 13 different times in the book of Hebrews, if you read through this book, he'll make a very concentrated effort to make this point, which becomes the theme of the whole book. Whatever you're thinking of, whatever you're tempted by, Jesus is better. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. It's all about Jesus. And he'll begin to make his case for that. Now in chapter 1, he makes a case saying Jesus is superior to the angels. And he kind of capstones his argument in chapter 1, verse 13. He says these words. And to which of the angels has he, God, ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This idea of a footstool, um, if you study history, archaeology has uncovered many footstools. Historically, it's like first century trash talk. Okay? Uh, a king would conquer another king. It's like ancient trash talk. A king would uh, conquer another king. And when that king was conquered, he would design a footstool with a picture of that conquered kingdom that he could rest his feet on as a symbol of me conquering you. 
right? Now, before footstools, though, there was an ancient practice. When one kingdom engaged in a battle with another kingdom and one king defeated another king, one of the things he would do is he would hold, have that conquered king, the conquered king held down on the floor, and the conquering king would place his foot on the neck of the conquered king so everybody would know, I'm the one that conquered. I'm the conqueror. And so the Bible tells us there will be a day when Jesus will place his foot on the enemy. He will crush the enemy with his heel, right? And so he says, Jesus is the conqueror, not the angels. Now, it's fascinating. My, um, my wife's uncle, David, uh, his brother, uh, was teaching a class. And in the class, he, he talked about the angels. He said, God did some incredible things through angels. Like in the Old Testament, there's this um, description of a story where God sends one single angel on one single night to battle and defeat over 180,000 enemy troops. And he does it. He says, but he never told the angel to put his foot on the neck of the conquered kingdom. Because here's the point that the author of Hebrews is making. There's one conqueror. There's one conquering king, and it's Jesus. The angels are simply servants. Jesus is the conqueror. So now he gets to chapter 2, and he says, therefore... Because of this truth, we need to pay special attention to that truth of the superiority of Jesus in all things. We need to really pay attention to it in case we start to drift away from it. He says, you're going to be tempted and you're going to drift away from this truth. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word uh, drift. Um, Maybe now it's rings coming off of fingers, right? You're like, I'm going to hold on tight to my ring. For me, though, that wasn't the first thing that would come to my mind when I heard this word drift. For me, my mind goes, surprise, surprise, to where I grew up, the ocean. I grew up in South Florida on the beach, and every day we'd go out to the beach, and we would hang out, and we would play. And if you've been, uh, which is surprising, there are actually people that haven't. It's unfortunate. Uh, (laughs) You want to get ready for heaven, go to the beach. Uh, And so we would go out there, and we would play in the waves. We'd play in the ocean. And you could body surf, and you could skimboard, you could actually surf. You, we would wrestle with one another. We would throw the football and have a lot of fun. And what happens when you spend a lot of time at the beach is you'll be hanging out and doing things in the water, and time will pass, and all of a sudden you'll look up, and you realize, how in the world did I get that far away? Like, all my stuff is like half a mile down the beach. How did that happen? We got in the water way down there, and now I've drifted this far away. How did that happen? And there's actually a guy going through my bag, and I don't have time to get to him before he steals all my stuff. Like, we've drifted so far. How in the world did this happen? When we went to the Florida this past summer, uh, we had our kids playing in the, in the beach, in the, in the water, and we would consistently have to say, hey, come up out of the water. You're drifting. You're going further than you think you are. Out of the water. Come on. Come on, guys, be careful. Don't go. You're, you're drifting. You don't even realize it. You're getting further and further from us. Come up out of the water and come back over here. It was a cry to pay attention, pay attention to where they were. This is what's going on with the book of Hebrews. It's saying, hey, pay attention. You're drifting. You don't even realize how far you're drifting away, but you're drifting. Pay attention. Focus on this. This idea of drifting has kind of a universal impact. You've experienced this in your life, I'm sure, in your relationships, Right? Maybe it's with your disciplines. Right? How long does it take for the New Year's resolution to wear off? All but three and a half minutes, right? Because we drift away from that commitment. Maybe it's in your finances. You guys set goals, and you decide we're going to go after this, but over time, and you get into this routine, and all of a sudden, slowly you drift. Slowly you drift away from these goals that you had, this point on the shore that you were so focused on. You're drifting further and further away from it. It has an impact on us in so many areas of our lives. Here's what I've learned about drifting. You and I don't naturally drift toward truth. We drift toward falsehood. These Christians, 
and here in Hebrews chapter 2, they were drifting away from what they knew to be true. And they were not holding on to what the truth that had been taught to them, that they'd been discipled with and trained up with. They were drifting away from it. And so what happens is he's calling out, hey, you're, get out of the water. Like, do you realize how much further you're drifting than you think you are? This isn't safe. Be careful. Come up out of the water. The other thing I've learned about drifting is this. The further you drift, the harder it is to hear the voice from the shore. Which is logical, right? Like, the further I'm drifting away, I can't hear this voice calling out to me that I'm drifting too far away. Think about it in terms of your marriage, right? You guys, you're married, and over time, you begin to get into this routine of life. Kids come into the picture. You know, I've got this responsibility for work. I've got to travel for work. I've got this work event. Your, wife, your wife's like, I've got to take care of uh, this thing and this thing at my work as well. And all of a sudden, the kids come into the picture, and you're like, man, we've got the sports calendar, the school calendar. We've got to make sure they do their homework. All of a sudden, we've got to uh, go to our discipleship group, but then we've got to make it to church. And after church, we've got to make sure that we get home, and the grass isn't even cut. We've got to cut the grass. We've got to work on the house. We've got to do all these things. Boom, boom, boom. And all of a sudden, one day becomes one week. A week becomes a month. A month becomes a year. And year becomes multiple years. And you look up one day. Maybe you've experienced this. And you look at each other, and you think, how in the world did we drift this far apart? I mean, I thought everything that we were doing was good. How did we drift this far apart from one another? Maybe you do this with your children. We said this last week, and I really mean it. When the family's calendar is full, the soul of the family is at risk. When your calendar is packed and you have all these different commitments, your family's soul is at risk. Because it's one thing to another, and one day becomes one week, and one week becomes a month, and all of a sudden you look up and you're like, my kid's 18. They're 18 years old. How in the world did this happen? How did we drift this far apart? How is this even possible? Same thing happens with you spiritually. You're like, all right, man, everything, I just, I didn't get to read the Bible yesterday, and I didn't uh, get to spend time praying. As if reading the Bible and praying is this obligatory thing. Like, you, you, the further you drift, the less real reading Scripture becomes. It doesn't feel like you're really connecting to God. And so we drift. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't pray. Okay, now I'm, we're missing discipleship group. Why? Because we've got this thing going on, and it's honestly, like, we, might, we won't say this out loud, but it's really more important than meeting with our group, so we're not going to go to group, and then we're not going to go to church because me and we were out late so much, and then some, Saturday night, it was so late, we just decided we weren't going to come and gather on Sunday morning, and look, those things are going to happen, friends, like they are. Those days are going to happen, and that's okay. We had somebody, we had this event at the church yesterday called Grace Marriage, and we're trying to invest in some of the, the couples here, and you're going to hear more about it in the months to come, an opportunity for you to sign up and be a part of it. But at this great marriage event, one of the couples in the group that I was with said, uh, we, got, we get home sometimes, and there's so much going on, it's like we look at everything, we say, okay, no one died, everybody ate, we did a good thing today, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's what it feels like sometimes, and that's what it feels like spiritually. Sometimes it just, man, like it'd be good to just get through the day alive. The problem is, those days will add up. And those days will become weeks, and those weeks will become months, and those months will become years, and you'll look up one day and you'll think, how in the world did we drift this far? Hebrews chapter 1 is crying out, like, hey, come up out of the water. You're drifting further than you think you are. It's a call from the shore to come back. He continues more detailed, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. He says this, the reason I'm calling you back is this, for since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So it gets a little bit more serious. He's like, it's not just about you playing in the water and drifting. There's actually a shark in the water, and if you're not careful, the shark's going to get you. So you need to get up out of the water. Stop drifting further from me and toward the danger. You need to pay attention. Focus. 
He said, let me remind you, this message that the angels delivered, the Old Covenant is what he's referring to, your Old Testament, the way things used to be, he said that message proved to be reliable. What he means is this. If you're new to church, let me just explain this to you briefly. The Bible teaches that when God created, then sin entered the world and it separated us from God. Okay? It separated us from him. And God want, wants deeply to be reconnected to us, but he can't be around sin. And sin surrounds us when we make those decisions. And so God instituted a message through prophets and angels saying, hey, there's a way for us to be reconnected. Here's this system that you have to live within. And there's these laws that have to govern the way that you live. You step outside of those laws and there is a just consequence for it. Notice the word. If you have your Bible, circle the word just. This is not an injustice that God is doing. This is not pressing his power onto us. It's saying, here's the way things can work for us to be connected. You step outside of that and there's a consequence. And the consequence will always fit the crime. Like every single time. That's what God says. He says that message proved to be reliable. Why? Because it connected us to the Lord and there were consequences. And every single time someone stepped outside of it, the, the, the consequence was a just consequence. He says, now how much more is that the case? Now that God has bridged that gap with his son Jesus, how much worse is the consequence if we neglect that great salvation that's been made available to all of us? How much worse is it? What he's saying is this. There's going to come a day and this isn't popular to say, but it's what the text teaches. There's going to come a day when you will be judged based on what you chose to do with God's son, Jesus. That's what he's saying. And the consequence would be, if you chose not to take in this great salvation, that you would be separated from him forever. And that is a far worse consequence than any that came before it. Look, I don't mean to be rude when I say this because uh, I, I get emotional when I talk about the grace of God in my own life. Grace is beautiful. It's incredible. I love God's grace. It's changed my entire life. I can't, I can't get through a day without being grateful for it. But just because grace exists doesn't mean that justice and judgment don't. Okay? Judgment and justice are coming. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, there's coming a day when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What he's saying when he wrote those words in, in the book of Philippians is that there will come a day, praise God that he's patient with us so that we can choose grace. There will come a day when he will call us to account for what we chose to do with Jesus. And every knee will bow and recognize the lordship of Jesus, but for some it'll be too late. He says, look, this is a really serious thing that you really have to pay attention to, how far you're drifting from this truth. But I love this, too, because when you read the New Testament, they don't just leave it at that. Like, yeah, get it together. See ya. Like, they don't do that. They say, get it together, and let me remind you why it's worth getting it together. Let me remind you why you can bank your whole life on this truth. And he continues in verse 3. It says, for since the message declared by angels uh, proved to be reliable, he goes to verse, the, the second part of verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord. So Jesus declared it first. It was attested to by those who directly heard it from the Lord. While God also bore, on top of all of that, he also bore witness to this truth by signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So he says, you can really bank your entire life on this, on this truth. Because, first, it was delivered by Jesus. Now, again, when we sit in a seat and look at a stage, and we do that week in and week out, there's a, it can happen to all of us. It happens to me, too, all the time. I lose sight of this. 
I want this to hit you. Jesus was a real person. He really lived in this world. He had real experiences in this world. And when he got up to declare the message of the coming kingdom, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then Jesus made that way possible, and he died the death that we deserve to die. That really happened in history. He was crucified for us. He was buried, and he rose from the dead, giving us the ability to have a direct connection with the Creator. That really happened. He said, not only did that really happen, that's why you can actually trust this with your, like your entire life to this truth. Not only did that happen, but everyone that was around him attested to that truth, and they all agreed with one another. You get a group of people together, and the fact that they would bank their whole life on it, and many of them die a martyr's death, tells you something. They're not going to die for something in that moment that they really don't believe is true. Now, many people die for a lie that they believe is true. No one dies for a lie that they don't think is true. These apostles weren't lying and making this up with all their heart because they watched it happen. They listened to him teach. They watched him raise from the dead. And they, this is so true, I'm willing to give it all. And they did. He says, we have their testimony. He says, but on top of all of that, we've got all the signs and the wonders and the miracles. Now let me tell you about the, these words. You can highlight these words in that passage. Signs and miracles are like spiritual pointing. They're supernatural pointing. They always have a purpose. Miracles don't just have, like, God doesn't do that. He did not do that just to do it. It was always a spiritual wake-up. Look, look, look at Jesus. Everything that happened, all these signs, all these miracles, all pointed to, yes, this is true. Like, you can bank your whole life on this. This is so true. Look at this. Pay attention, pay attention. Look, pay attention. And the wonder, that word never appears by itself in the Bible. It always magnifies the signs and the wonders. The signs and the miracles. So these signs and these miracles, these wondrous things that God was doing were all to give us the confidence that we can trust Jesus. One of the ways I like to think about it is this. God did not tell us, just believe me, and that's all there is to it, because I said so. It's not the way it works. I heard one person describe it this way. I really like this. He said, if you open your Bible to the first page of your Bible and you read the first verse of the first book of your Bible, Genesis 1, 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is not true, nothing matters. But if that verse is true, everything matters. And the Bible goes on to attest over and over and over again, that's true. God created, he did it on purpose, he did it for a purpose, and he wants us to bank and, and trust and put everything we have on the line for that truth, and he's made it perfectly available to each and every one of us. And so, the question I have, we understand what these verses teach, is what is it that causes us to drift? Like, I, you know, we get it. Like, I, don't, I, I shouldn't drift, but what is it in your life, in my life, that really kind of causes us to drift, where eventually we look up and we say, look how far I've drifted from the shore. Like, how did that happen in my life? How, how, how did I get here? There's a lot of reasons. I think there's two that have a profound impact on us. The first one is this. We stop learning. You stop learning. I think learning is one of the greatest gifts that God gives us in this life. It's one of the greatest gifts we have in life. Learning and gratitude. I love reading about people in history and seeing how they did all these incredible things. I mean, I shared with the staff just last week in a devotion about Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was an incredible person. He did all these things. He accomplished all these wonderful things with his life. He went on safaris and he stopped bank robbers. He just did incredible things. At one point, he was shot point blank with a revolver. 
and they wanted to take him and get him help. He said, let me finish my speech. I just got to give a speech. It'll be really quick. 53 minutes later, he was standing in a pool of his own blood, and he finished the speech. Like, you are a man. Like, right? Like, <laughs> wow. Right? He would read, they, history tells us he would read hundreds of books a year. He wrote 35 books and was still president. He had an insatiable desire to learn. The Bible tells us, I mean, we can't ever stop learning. And the fear is the more we sit, the more we do just listen and take things in, we just start to think we have it all figured out. And we stop learning. We stop investing ourselves in knowing more and more about the God that created us. You'll never know enough. If you don't remember anything else today, remember this. You will never know enough. There's always more to learn when it comes to following Jesus. In John chapter 17, on the last night of his life, Jesus said this. This is eternal life. Here's the purpose of your life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Let me summarize it this, this way for you. The goal of your life, if you are a Christian, is to know God and to make him known. Period. That's all of life. Every day you wake up, how can I get to know God better and help other people do the same? The second way is this. We stop obeying. We no longer obey. Now, I put these next to each other because... A lot of people say, well, you have to learn Scripture and then apply it. Like, applying it is a wonderful thing, and it's super important, but applying it can sometimes be our way out of obeying it. I can make it selfish. I just apply it to me, and yet the Bible's calling us to do things that we're not comfortable with, and we just focus on other things. The Bible's clear. We have to obey Him. He's not just Savior. He is Savior. It's beautiful. He's also Lord. And there are things about God that you will never know until you obey Him until you follow him, until you experience this. Look, I, I do a lot of premarital counseling. And there comes a point in the counseling sessions where I'm sitting with a couple and I'm done. Not because they're like, well, there's a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons that I get like, just done with the conversation is this. It's like, that's it. I can't really explain this anymore to you. You've got to go and experience it now. Because no words, our, our language is weak to prepare them for the moment when they see their bride walk down the aisle. When they hold hands, when the wedding's over and they're married, that feeling you had that you don't have the words to describe, or when you have children and you try to explain it to people, this is what it's like, this is what it's like, and then they hand you the baby, and you're holding the baby, and you're like, language is horrible. Like, nothing prepared me for this. Like, I can't explain this feeling. I don't, nothing's better than this. Nothing. Like, nothing prepared me for this. And the same thing with following Jesus. I can tell you about it all day long, but until you're walking with him, and you're experiencing his grace in your life. I, I, can't, I can't put enough words to it. You have to experience it. And so we have to obey and walk with him because he meets us in that place. Now, that's what causes us to drift. How do we prevent that? You're like, well, we need to learn more and obey. Yeah, you do. But let me nail down just a little bit more. What I find when I read through the scriptures about what can spiritually get our attention and cause us to drift and what can we do to prevent that drifting from happening spiritually. And it's going to be tough, but here we go. First one is, is this. You need to know why you believe what you believe. And we need to be teaching our kids. A multi-generational church is a beautiful thing. We have so many generations in this church, and I love it, but it's dangerous. Because we are only two or three generations away from complete disobedience, complete rebellion against God if we're not careful. Your kids need to see you reading the Bible at home. Your spouse needs to see you reading the Bible at home. You need to know why it is you believe what you believe. When someone says you're a Christian, yeah, why? I don't know, just my mom told me. I went to church my whole life. You have to be able to explain why it is. You, there's no substitute for your ability to articulate why Jesus is the Lord of your life. Second thing is this. We need to pay attention to what we're giving to. You need to pay attention to what you're giving to. 
the Bible's very clear. One of the things that causes us to drift more than anything else is our money. It's our desire to control our money, our desire to understand our money, our desire to get more money. It is a very powerful thing. Jesus spoke to very often. It has the ability to completely disillusion you and cause you to drift further and further away from what God has called you to. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul wrote these words to Timothy. He said this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But he keeps going. That's what we remember. But here's what he says. It's through this craving for money, to control the money, to feel financially secure, to not give or to control my giving, that some have wandered away. That word is literally drifted. That some have drifted from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Are you tithing? You're like, I knew it. He's going to say it. Yeah, are you tithing? Are you teaching your kids to tithe? Are you looking at your money and saying, we don't need to hold on to this? 10%, Lord, that's a lot. The average Christian gives 2.3% to the church. If every Christian in America gave the 10% we're called to do, we would fully fund missions and there would be no debt in church. We would accomplish much more. Here's the point in all of it. If you don't want to tithe here, don't tithe here. But find a place that you're all in and go tithe. Because, it, look, here's the thing. Tithing is not about your preferences. Giving financially is not about what you like. So you don't hold it and say, when the church looks the way I want, I'll give. Or when the church behaves the way I want, I'll give. Or when, that's not what giving Giving is about the condition of your heart and colliding your heart with the heart of God. It'll take you to places, just like we heard earlier, that you cannot get otherwise. But it's a call, and it's a danger, because it can cause you to drift. The third one is this. You need to pay attention to who you surround yourself with. And I mean this one with all my heart. Parents, take this one home. Make it a quote. You can blame me, uh, but I got it from somewhere else. You show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Every single time. Who you allow to be closest to you will have a dramatic influence on your spiritual development. No matter what. You can't, you can't go against it. It just does. They have an influence. Psychology tells us you will become the sum average of the five people that are closest to you. And you cannot fight that. They will influence you that much. A couple of years ago, uh, not a couple of years ago, last year, um, uh, we, our elders got together. We went out to Tad and Amanda Thompson's. And they, they have a, a big operation where they deal with sheep and do a lot of things that I don't fully understand. But Tad's right over here and you can ask him about it later. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, Mike Parsley, one of our deacons, came out and he led our elders through this understanding of sheep and shepherds and how it all worked. Well, last week our student ministry went out there and Ryan brought all the students and they got to sit and participate in the same thing as us. And so then we got to sit together and compare notes. And it was really fascinating what we picked up on in our experiences learning more about sheep today. One, they smell. Always have, always will, right? It blew me away that sheep still have the ability to hear the voice of those who are closest to them and understand it and respond to it. Blows me away. And they understand the voice that's closest to them, right? Ryan pointed out, he's like, I, sheepdogs, that's a thing. Like that, that's a, they really do use sheepdogs still. And the sheepdogs guide and direct and protect and keep the sheep from drifting. Here's the point. The Bible calls us sheep all the time and says we need a shepherd. Hebrews was not re- written anywhere singular. It's all plural. You cannot follow Jesus by yourself. He wants you connected to people. You need to be in a group. Many of you have held out on becoming a part of a discipleship group. I get it. It can be weird, but it's only, it's only going to be so long before you look up and you think, how did we get this far? How did we drift? You need other people that are chasing Jesus to be around you, investing in you, caring about you, praying for you, weeping with you, laughing with you, experiencing life with you. The kind of people that if you move away, you're going to miss them for the rest of your life. The kind of people that you want to be around. The kind of people you want to build into and allow to build into you and your family. You need people. Because 
you will drift. And you need to be able to hear the voice of the shepherd saying, come back. Let me close this way. John chapter 21. I'm going to read you a passage. It's not going to appear on the screen. After I got done prepping the sermon, this came to me like early this morning. I get up early on Sunday mornings. It was like uh, about 4.45, 5 o'clock this morning. I'm like, that's it. And I just felt like I had to share it to you. So we're going over this morning. Uh, our children's volunteers, uh, if you have any of them in your family, my email is ben at newhopecc.net. Uh, John chapter 21, um, here's the story. Uh, this is right after the resurrection of Jesus. If you remember, Peter had drifted. He denied Jesus three times the night he was betrayed. And all of a sudden, afterwards, Jesus is going to interact with Peter again. And here's how it appears in John chapter 21. He says, after this, Jesus revealed himself in his resurrected form again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. So this is important. He's trying to get your attention. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, and I'm sure this was in a real sad tone, I'm going to go fishing. They said to him, well, we'll go with you. We don't want you to be alone. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they didn't catch anything. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him because they were too far out. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no, we don't. So Jesus says, hey, cast it on the other side of the boat. And they do that, and they get this haul that they can't even get into the boat. And in that moment, it says the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, he liked himself. I'm kidding, he just described himself that way. It hit him in that moment. Wait, Jesus told us to do this. That's Jesus. And as soon as he says it, he says, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord... He put on his outer garment because he had taken it off to fish all night and threw himself into the sea. There's no waiting. When he recognized the voice of the shepherd from the shore, no matter how far out he had drifted, he threw himself into the sea. And the Bible says he swam about 100 yards. The other disciples were like, we'll take the boat. But for Peter, he couldn't help it. I mean, he jumped in, and no matter what, I'm getting to him. Because no matter how far I've drifted, if I hear his voice, I'm coming. I think there's probably two groups of people here today and I'm included in it. One of you, one group of people, you've never let Jesus be the Lord of your life, and so you don't know you've drifted from something you were not, you're not connected to. The Bible says that he's still standing on the shore calling out to you. Hey, it's time. And Scripture lays out how you would respond to that. You would recognize his voice. Like, yes, I believe this is true. I believe everything he's done. It, You'd recognize that your sin separated you from him and you'd repent of that. It just says, I'm ready to stop that life and pursue this new life. That you would confess Jesus is the Christ. He's the one. He's the only one. It says you would get baptized into Christ. The Bible says when you come up out of that water, you are a new creation. You're given this gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He becomes that voice that says, hey, you're drifting. You're going a little further than you think you are. Come up out of the water. It's getting dangerous. But there's others in the room. And we've been following Jesus for a long time. But, man, one day turned into a week, and a week turned into a month, and all of a sudden we've looked up, and it's like, I, I don't know how I've drifted this far. I, I don't know. But I hear his voice. And we're going to close out with a couple songs, and those songs can be used by you as a prayer. Just, Lord, I'm ready. I, I, I'm done drifting. I want to come back to the shore. We're going to spend a few minutes singing. If you have a decision to make, you want someone to pray with you, I'll just sit right up here. You can come up and talk to me during the song. That's fine. You can catch me after the service. That's good. But don't let today pass without reconnecting with the shepherd that's calling you. Let's pray.